Hi and welcome to the Habits Habit Podcast, a podcast about habits, happiness and human behaviour. I'm Brian Conroy, I am your host and I'm delighted you found it. Um, If you have enjoyed any, well you haven't listened to this episode yet, but when you do, if you enjoy it, go back and listen to some of the other ones. Um, If this is your first time listening, you've come in uh, at a very good one because my guest today is Dr. Ben Gardner. Um, That name may not mean anything to you, but if you read any book on habits, at all um you are bound to find reference uh, well sorry any good um, book on habits you are bound to find reference to um ben's work because he is at the cutting edge of scientific research into the science of habit formation um uh, so you will see gardner and lally um just quoted everywhere um which really means um he is, in in geeky science terms, he is the man when it comes to habits. Um, so uh, we're very fortunate, uh, certainly I'm very fortunate that he agreed to be on the podcast, and also that he just happens to be a very interesting guy, um, which is always helpful. That's probably enough of me big upping him anyway. Uh, I think you're going to be suitably impressed. This is Dr. Ben Gardner on habits. So, <laughs> where to begin, Ben? Uh, I suppose what's really interesting from my point of view in, in terms of this is you're pretty much the guy who is doing all the research into all the questions I uh, have and I think all the questions most people have about habits. So you should, in theory, be the person who can answer them all. Is that right? Yes, let's hope so. I, I see my the research that I do is really trying to take the concept of habit and make it tally up with how we understand the real world. The Traditionally, habit research has been done on rats running down mazes in search of chocolate because they've received a chocolate reward when they get to the end of the maze and so on. My concern is that often this kind of principle has just been taken and dumped onto much more significant and meaningful human behaviors and I don't think we've really done enough of that that intellectual work to say hang on how does this really apply to the real world yes my hopefully I'll be able to answer your questions but my research is very much on trying to make habit make sense and that has included for me having to slightly redefine what we mean by habit as well as think about how habit plays out in behavior how it forms how we break it all of these questions are all within my remit really we, you've touched on a whole load of stuff that I'm going to be asking you about. But what I did want to ask first was exactly that point. So the reason I reached out to Ben to start with was because I frankly stumbled across when I was doing some just habit research generally, a re- really recent paper from June 2020, which is Does Habit Weaken the Relationship Between Intention and Behaviour? Revisiting the Habit Intention Interaction Hypothesis, which is a bit of a mouthful. But this concept of when I read your paper at the end of it, I was like, wait a minute, has Ben had a moment here? Has he gone, oh, Christ, the last 20 years we've been wrong or we've been headed down the road? Like, how significant is this paper in terms of our understanding of habits, do you think? I'm glad to see that you you came across that paper, because for me personally, I think it's a very important paper. And that's because I think people often get habit wrong and we oversimplify the many complexities of human experience and so on, just so that it makes sense for us. So, for example, within the habit research, it is proposed that often if you have a habit for doing one thing, but you have an intention, a kind of conscious intention to do something else, you'll tend to act in line with your habit and not in line with your intention. And this has been depicted sometimes as like being like a horse race. Because we often act 
habitually, we can think of the habit horse as being stronger and more powerful, and it just tends to, to reach the finish line being the point at which it translates into our behavior. Hab the habit horse tends to win the race, and that's what's generally accepted within the literature. The, so from that, we've gone to say, okay, if people tend to act on, in line with their habits and not in line with their conscious motivation, then that means that if you can get someone to form a habit for doing something, they'll carry on doing that, that, that behavior over time. Because a lot of the time, when people try to change their behavior over the long term, they don't succeed precisely because they lose motivation. They, their intentions begin to dip. They begin to, begin to think, I can't really be bothered doing any, this anymore. But if our intentions override our, uh, sorry, if our habits override our intentions, then this should mean that if someone forms a habit, they will carry on doing this behavior even if their intentions change. But we know that this isn't the case because if you strongly, str very strongly want to do something, you can do that thing even if you have a habit for doing something else. So one example that I often give to my students is, for me, I have a disgusting habit of biting my nails. But if, and and that's, that for me is a true habit. It's something I do. I don't want to do it, but I do it nonetheless. But if someone were to say to me, I will give you a million pounds tomorrow if you stop biting your nails for 24 hours, I think I'd be able to do that. So what that shows is that in this particular, just from this thought experiment, we can see that if your intention is very strong, then your intentions can override your habits. And if your intentions can override your habits, then that kind of challenges that notion that once you have a habit, you'll keep acting in line with your habit and not in line with your intentions. So what we've tried to do in this paper is say, actually, the, the relationship between habit and intention is a lot more complicated um, than is commonly assumed. And that's because your intentions can be broken down into two components. You've got the direction of the intention. So something like biting your nails, you could say, I either intend to bite my nails or I intend to do something that would mean that I will not bite my nails. So something that is entirely incompatible with biting your nails. So you dichotomize the behavior. Then you have the strength of your determination. How strongly are you determined to, to actually do this thing, whether it's biting your nails or doing the thing that is not biting your nails? And once you start appreciating these complexities, you realize there's a much more complex relationship in there. And essentially, our paper is important because it shows that if you very strongly intend to do something other than your habitual behavior, then you can actually stop yourself acting habitually. The thing is that in, in our day-to-day -day lives, often we're distracted, we're stressed, or whatever it is, it just, those kind of stressors can stop us being able to act in line with our intentions. But that's not to say that we can't act in line with our intentions. So yes, I think this is a very important paper, because, precisely because it shows that habit is not the be-all and end-all, and that there is more to um, our behavior than habit. And sometimes I think we're actually overplaying the importance of habit. It is important in directing our behavior, but I think sometimes we overplay it. Interesting. Can I ask briefly, I plan to talk about this later, but I think it's on point now. I'm very conscious of not goading people into bashing other people. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But Atomic Habits by James Clear has been 53 or 54 weeks now in the New York Times bestsellers list, which says a couple of interesting things generally, but obviously there's a huge interest in habits at the moment. And given what your paper is saying, first of all, I don't know, have you read Atomic Habits or would you lower yourself to such a menial reading? I haven't read it, but it's not that I wouldn't lower myself to reading it. It's not that I see it as beneath me. I just simply haven't read it. But the, the, what is interesting is, I think, 
the thrust of a lot of current popular psychology. So if you want to take this as a kind of habits to the common man, as free economics, broad economics to the, the common man, it's that kind of, uh, here's everything you need to know, know about habits, change your habits, change your life, and off we go um, approach. And the thrust of your paper is there might be a bit more to it than that. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I think it's simply that. I don't think we can say, actually, no one has ever considered the importance of habit before. And now that we know that habit is important, we can make sure that people make lasting changes to their lives in a way that we couldn't do before that book or the kind of research that we're doing at the moment had been published. The concept of habit, as we understand it within psychology, is it's so old that there's a classic chapter by William James that was written in the late 19th century where you read it now and he, he, had, he showed so much insight. And some of what he, he was writing, it's, it's been forgotten within psychology. And you read it now and you feel update the language a little bit and it would feel like a, a brand new paper offering new insight. And within that, he's citing stuff from, from the 1850s. So it, it's not that we didn't know this stuff. It's that I think the work that we need to do is to try and make sure that this stuff can tally up. So if someone um, can write a book that says change your habits and you'll change your life for the better, that's great. But that doesn't mean that we've solved the problem. And I think people will be able to take a book like that and appreciate the habit perspective because a lot of people don't appreciate the, the, the power of habit. And I think once people learn about habit and they can appreciate that, then yes, they may well make changes. But I think it's premature to say that they change their entire lives for the, for the rest of their lives for the better just on the basis of understanding habits. Can I ask another um, related question to to this? And I'll move off this now and come back to your actual paper and some of the other stuff you've said. But I am curious, and I asked um, Professor Wendy Wood the same question. And I, in fact, I ask all the psychologists and scientists, if you look at the people who appear to be bringing this to the masses, Charles Duhigg had one of the huge books with the power of habit. Uh, and then James Clear has been over a year in the New York Times bestseller list. Like, it seems counterintuitive that it's journalists and bloggers who are bringing this kind of stuff to the mainstream rather than the scientists themselves. Obviously, then there is Wendy Wood and there is BJ Fogg on the kind of science side. But, but it, is there, why is that? Or you would have thought that it would be the people who are studying this and who've done all the studies that are, are writing the books rather than non-scientists, if I could put it like that. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that academics are not really trained in how to sell their ideas and, and communicate their ideas to lay audiences. We just tend to write things for other academics. And once our paper has been submitted and sorry, once our paper has been published and so on, that has traditionally been it. You, you've done the work. You've moved you on to the next thing. Exactly. So there is some element within academia, we're trying to improve this. There's a lot of emphasis on what's termed impact now, actually taking the research you've done and making an impact with it. But I think traditionally, academics haven't been trained in that. The other thing is that I think what we are trained in is always being very circumspect and hesitant to, to say that anything is true. In science, we never find proof for anything. We just find further evidence for something, or we find evidence that does not support a particular hypothesis. We'd never say, actually, yes, we think we've solved it, and we're going to tell everyone about it, because we just feel like we're on this never-ending quest to, to try and get closer to the truth, though um, feeling like we'll never actually get there. So it, it doesn't seem like it's, it's the, the natural thing to do. It's not like people will 
do a load of research and then think, okay, I've solved it now and go and write a book about it. it I think it is something that would be that's certainly useful for people. And then I think, I guess, on a related note, I think the incentive structure within academia is that yeah, as I said, there's this growing acceptance that impact is important, but I think the kind of things that are, that are valued in academic institutions is bringing in research funding because institutions need funding and publishing papers in top academic journals. I think for some people, for some institutions, for some kind of layers of management, writing a pop psychology book would be seen as, it would be scoffed at. But no, I completely agree that I think and someday I, I wonder if I'll write a book, but I wonder if it'd just be too pedantic. But that's another issue. I'll edit it, Ben. You do the science <laughs> bit. I'll do the here's what people want to hear bit and we'll have a bestseller in no time. Wonderful. Let's do that. I look, there's a real genuine point in what you said about there's no finish line to this. And if there was, you probably wouldn't have written the paper you just written in June because you would have stopped ages ago and going, right, that's habits sorted. Yes. So let's then dig into the this a little bit using your own example, right? So let's say if we stick with biting our nails. And sorry, I should say, I might as well put my cards on the table. The thing that I've struggled with, and I've read all the pop psychology books, and I've now gone into some of the more papers, which is how I'm on this um, chat with you. I have struggled with the uh, intention motivation piece in that I've thought it has to be necessary. And I've felt there's a piece missing from some of the stuff that I've read. So that's my starting point. But if we stick with your nails, right? So someone says, you have a habit of uh, biting your nails. Someone says, I'm going to pay you uh, a million euro to not bite your nails for 24 hours. Now, when you say you think you could do that, do you not now, or do you, let's just play it out, start to use, so there's an intention and there's a consciousness to it, but you're also using some of habit-forming science to do it. For example, when you said that, the first thing I thought was, right, I'd cover my nails in tinfoil. So I'd be making a conscious choice to cover my nails in tinfoil for 24 hours so that if I went to bite them out of habit, I would see this tinfoil and I would go, whoa, million euro, okay, hang on, back up, don't bite the nails. So which part of that is is intention or motivation or habit and then i'm interrupting the cues which would be or the ability to do the habit so it feels like it all starts to marry together to me a little bit yeah when you said there that you'd use the science of habit to to change the habit the the science of habit and habit-based change is is ultimately based on behavior change so you would you'd bring in principles and techniques of generic behavior change. And for me personally, I feel that I'm confident enough that if I knew that I had a million euros waiting for me the next day, I wouldn't need to use techniques like putting tinfoil on or whatever, but each to their own, if that works for you. And it it, it would be sensible to do something like that. Such are the stakes. If you make an error and you accidentally bite your nails, then yes, I think you would certainly want to use any kind of reminders or anything like that. But my point here is that I think the reason that I would be confident that I would not bite my nails is that the thought of getting the million euro the next day would be so salient for me for the entire 24-hour period that I wouldn't need any reminding. And I think the important point here is that often, yes, we do act in line with our habits and we might find ourselves acting in a way which is counter to how we want to act. But the reason that happens is that in the ebb and flow of everyday life, 
whatever it is that we intend to do just gets momentarily lost from our attention, from our memory, because we're thinking about other things. If, for example, you're struggling to get the kids to school on time, then your attention focuses on doing that. Or if you're struggling to get to, to work on time, or if you've got a big project to do at work, these other priorities will dominate in our uh, kind of attentional resources. And as a result of that, it means that our intention to to not do our habitual behavior is momentarily lost or it makes its way down the kind of priority list. And so we end up acting in a way which is more in line with our habit. My point about knowing that you've got a million euro waiting for you the next day is that for that entire day, that will be the only thing that I would think of. And I think that would be sufficient for me not to um, bite my nails. But yeah, anything else that you can do, including those what we call self-regulatory techniques, which are about just making sure that you act on the, the intentions that you have, like putting tin foil on your nails or putting reminders around yeah, the house or wherever it is you, that you are telling you not to bite your nails, anything like that could help. Now it's going to sound I'm obsessed with your nails and I'm not, but it just I think it helps to stick in one example while you tease some of this stuff out because otherwise it's not directly applicable. So in that context, there's a, a point. At, so let's say if someone was offering you a tenor, you'd probably end up biting your nails because the, the tenor wouldn't be forefront of your mind. Um, and then it goes up and there's a tipping point somewhere. I don't know. It depends on the person where you go, OK, that's actually a lot of money. Really, you've got my attention now. That's one thing. And then the other thing is, it logically playing in with that so let's say it's not a million let's say it's a thousand you are more likely to uh not bite your nails and get the thousand euro if you're having a nice relaxed day where there's not much going on am i right but if you were having a super busy day where you're stressed out in work and one of the kids is sick and everyone is screaming and shouting that you would revert to type if you like and and fall back on your habits because your conscious uh, thing of remember don't bite your nails just fades away with the noise yes yeah i'd completely agree it's really about what other competing goals might there be or what other stresses might there be that might crop up that might stop us from acting on the goal that we want to act on which in this case is not biting your nails that yes if you have i guess if you define a relaxing day as a day where there is nothing else that is so important and so urgent that it will take um, higher priority than not biting your nails, then yes, having a relaxing day would mean that you'd be far um, better placed to to stop biting your nails. I suppose I, I just, I, the reason I bring that up is purely from personal experience. So one of the things that I would certainly be looking to habit for in terms of my behavior would be my diet, regulating my diet, making sure that I'm eating properly. And what I would have noticed my entire life, but particularly since I started doing serious studying or working, is, uh, the, is when I am busy and stressed, the first thing to go is my diet. So, I, you know, instead of eating regular meals and healthily, I'll be grabbing junk food on the go because I'm busy. And to this day, no matter how I could be in the middle of a really good run of habit and form and doing everything right. But if I have one of those days where everything just goes to hell and then I end up going to the vending machine and, and buying whatever. And yeah, I, I mean, that. where does that sit in this whole um, jigsaw? This is where it starts to get complicated because sometimes stress can be a cue to doing a habitual behavior that might actually compete with 
the, the that might go against the behavior that you don't want to do. So let's say instead of instead of the nail biting example, let's say for example that you you want to stop yourself from habitually eating a chocolate bar at 2 p.m. when you get that mid-afternoon dip. Now, what you would have to do in order to stop yourself doing that is to, yes, if you have a relaxing day or anything that helps you to, that helps that prioritization of not eating unhealthy snacks on a particular day, anything that that stops other priorities coming up such that you forget that you don't want to eat unhealthy snacks, that would be good. But then on the other hand, any kind of stressors that might make you forget that you intended not to eat unhealthy snacks would be bad. Then if you add in the fact that some of those um, stresses may themselves be cues, it may be that when you're feeling stressed, you tend to eat unhealthily. So that would mean that if you found yourself at 2 p.m. and you already told yourself earlier that day, I don't, I know I eat chocolate in the afternoon, but today I'm definitely not going to do it. So you have this chocolate eating habit at 2pm, but you've told yourself you're not going to do it. When 2pm comes around, first of all, if you're stressed, then you're likely to forget that you didn't want to eat chocolate that afternoon. And also it might be that stress is a trigger to make you want to eat. So then you've got two cues, which are supporting habits. So then you're, you're really up against it. So that's where it starts to get complicated because actually you can have multiple habits that might be happening at the same time. So one of those habits might be to eat chocolate at 2 p.m. The other habit might be to eat chocolate when you're stressed. Now, if those two cues occur at the same time, then yeah, you're really up against it because you're trying to defeat two habits there and you've forgotten the motivation that you had to do something else. So this is what I mean about habit becoming more complicated in real life. Yeah, and 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 like that that makes sense to me. This is, and I suppose a spoiler alert, by the time you get to the end of the paper, you don't have an answer for this, um, which we talked about earlier because there probably is no final answer. But what you're saying is we really need to take a, a, a look at this and, and research more um, subtle aspects of this conundrum. Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, I think what we what we wanted to conclude from that paper is that, as I said, this notion that we act in line with our habits and not in line with our intentions, we've moved from that to say, okay, so if, you're, if you want someone to change their behavior over time, get them to form a habit because they will continue to act in line with that habit even if their intentions change. But our conclusion of that paper is actually that isn't always the case. So we think that in order for someone to keep doing a behavior, even if it's habitual, they need to have some kind of base level of motivation to to keep them doing it. So something like, let's use another example, let's talk about going for a run. If you have a habit for going for a run in the morning at 6 a.m., now what the traditional literature would say, what has been argued before we wrote this paper, is that if you form this habit for going running at 6 a.m., then come 6 a.m., you will go running. Now, in the winter months, when it starts to get chilly, you'll wake up and you might think, oh, I really can't be bothered to do this. However, because you have a habit, you'll carry on doing it. But our point is to say, no, if you if you get to the point where you wake up and rather than thinking, I can't be bothered to do it, you think, I really don't want to do it, then that means you probably won't do it. And so what we're trying to argue is that if you're developing some kind of intervention to help people based on this notion that habits override intentions, You've got to recognize that habits don't always override intentions. And so you will, people will need some basic level of motivation to keep them going. That's the main point we tried to um, come to. But I think clearly there's more research to be done to understand what are the different situations in which habit will win out over intentions and intentions will win out over habits and so on. 
So really, I think the conclusion is it's complicated, but it's not always the case that we act in line with habit and not intention. It's funny you should say that, Ben. I've just written some notes and some questions and some things here to help me make sure I don't make a a complete balls with the interview. (laughs) One of the things that I've written down here is what I learned from reading your paper is that for something that is supposed to be very simple, this is quite complicated. Yes, yeah, it's it's um, it's very complicated. But I but I think that's partly because of the way that people talk about habits. And this is something we talked before about the what people refer to as pop psychology books. One of my one of the things that I don't like in in, in a lot of books that are about habit for the general public is that often it, there is some confusion between what I understand habit to mean and frequent behavior. So I define a habit, for example, as, as not a behavior that we do, but as a cognitive process. And what this process involves is you learn an association by repeatedly doing something in a situation. You learn an association between that situation and the thing that you do in that situation. And then over time, if this keeps being, if you keep doing it, it keeps being reinforced to the stage that when you encounter that thing that you've learned comes immediately before you do in the behavior, that activates an impulse for you to want to do the behavior. And then much of the time you will act in line with that impulse, but sometimes you won't. So I see habit as this kind of cognitive process that generates behavior or may not generate behavior if you're able to stop yourself acting in line with it. But that's not the same as something that you do often. And I think a lot of the confusion around habit has come because people have used habit to refer either to something that's done automatically or just something that people do often. Yeah, not intentionally, but a good po- a good case in point, because I, when I'm talking to people about this, um, make a similar distinction in the sense that I would say there's habits um, that you do in the sense that you're talking. And then there's the habits of, say, the seven habits of highly effective people, which aren't habits in your sense of, or your description of it is that do you know that that yes. makes sense or, yes yeah, exactly. yeah that's yeah. that's exactly what i'm saying that that often we talk about we have a habit for doing something but it might not be supported by habit as i define it and as other psychologists define it and the reason that this becomes a problem when it comes to books on habit for the general public or even within the scientific literature is that often people will draw on the insights into habit as defined by psychologists and use that to support their perspective on why people do things repeatedly. But my key point here is that people can do things repeatedly, but not do them habitually. So actually what this means is if you keep going logically, you come to the conclusion that habit is is one input into our behavior, but the behaviors that we often think of as being habits, like the seven highly effective habits of successful people or whatever it is that you want to call it, these might not be supported by habit in a psychological sense. So all of that becomes quite confusing. Yeah, very confusing. I'm going to just talk about a couple of things I'm doing at the moment because a byproduct of doing this podcast is a lot of self-experimentation. And I'd be interested to just chat around that and see if there's any insights there. So, for example, one of my guests was banging on about having cold showers. And I thought, and and then I I went down a a YouTube rabbit hole of uh, Wim Hof and uh, breathing and all this kind of carry on. The end result of which is that at the moment, every time I have a shower, when I've finished my shower, I flick the water to cold for quite a long time, like relatively long time, and freeze myself. 
I'm not right. entirely sure why I'm doing it. But the point is this, I would do that now every day at the end of my shower. But it's not a habit. Like, it's a very conscious decision to stand in the shower going, oh, God, I have to turn this fucking thing to cold now. Jesus. Oh. And then you do it. So yes. that's not a habit. It's something I do regularly, but it's not a habit. Now, it, I suppose it may become a habit depending on how things pan out in the days and months ahead. But right now, in my view, it's not. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, that, that sounds completely feasible. I guess the way to test whether it is a habit or not is whether you find yourself still doing it when the situation changes. So let's say, I don't know, let's say if your shower broke and you had to have baths from that moment, when you when your shower is fixed again, do you find that you're still doing this or is it something you'll find that you're having to recover? If you're still doing it, then it's probably a habit. If you're not and you're having to consciously tell yourself it's time to do the cold water thing again, then it then it, it's, it's probably not a habit. So... Yeah, it's difficult to tell, but it sounds like it's not habitual for you. But it's also, for me though, it's at the intersection of everything that you're talking about in terms of intention and motivation. Because the reason I want to have the cold shower is partly because I was challenged to do it, partly out of curiosity to see if the person who said it was right. There's a big part of it is to, it's there's a, this kind of famous TED talk of this Marine um, general to say, make your bed every um, day so that at least you've accomplished one thing. For me, it's it's something I don't want to do, but if I can make myself do it, it gives me this little lift of kind of, right, if I can make myself have a cold shower, I can do other things. So there's a lot of very deliberate thought and conscious uh, motivation for why I'm doing it, which kind of interests me in if I then start doing it habitually, it did. It started with intention and motivation. And I think you touch on that to a small extent in the paper about where uh, intention comes into this. Yes, I think what's important, one thing that's important in what you just said is that you feel like you don't want to do this thing of turning the cold water tap on. But in fact, what, what we argue is that actually what you're experiencing is overall, you do want to do it. It's just at the point at which you have to do it, your determination to do it is quite low. In other words, you if we what in that situation, you are saying that you want to do it, but you don't want to do it particularly strongly. That is not to say that you want not to do it. Because if you strongly wanted not to do it, you would not do it. I think the point is that you do still have this motivation, this base level of motivation that you need to keep acting in a habitual way. It's just that at that moment, that level of motivation is reduced. And yeah, maybe you are doing it habitually, but yeah, this is why it gets so... These are the kind of situations in which we have to think really carefully, is this a habit or is it not? And I think what we probably find is that if you if someone contacted you and said actually that thing about cold showers turns out it's not true and in fact it's really bad for you if you just realize actually i'm not going to do it anymore and you stop doing it if you were able to do that then it wouldn't be a habit but if you found yourself continuing to do it then it would be a habit so the problem is that i think this is a good example of we're trying to tease out whether you're doing this habitually or not but actually the way to tell whether you're doing it habitually or not is to see whether changes to your motivation in other words, if you very strongly, if you start to find you really don't want to do it or changes to your situation. So, for example, that the shower breaks, but then it's fixed again. It's those kind of changes that will reveal whether it's habitual or not. 
Which brings me on to a, another example from pure personal experience, but that speaks it, that it just felt like a lot of what you said in this paper was just filling in missing gaps and lining things up because these are similar questions that I've asked of lots of people, like, how do you explain this? And some of them struggle. So the other example is to do with running. So you mentioned a running habit and running at 6am every morning and all that kind of stuff. So I took up running a couple of years ago. And I decided that I was training to do a half marathon and I really wanted to do the half marathon and I was really motivated to do it. And I really had all all the boxes ticked there. And so while I was training, I ran three times a week, pretty religiously, like I ran Tuesday, Thursday and Sunday. But if I missed a day, I would make it up the next day. So I, I had a schedule and I never missed a run, even though I might not have done it at the exact same time, the exact same way. As soon as the race was over, I stopped running. I'd like I'd achieved my goal. And so I I just stopped. I didn't run anymore. And again, you would assume that after months and months of running three days a week that you would have a running habit. And yet for me, it was inextricably linked to the goal. And once I'd achieved the goal, I no longer wanted to do the habit. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is a great case of when people would often say, this person's been doing this for a couple of months, for example, Therefore, he's got a habit of doing it. But the key test, as you've just pointed out, is once the goal is no longer there, do you find yourself still doing it? And no, you don't. So therefore, it's a goal-directed behavior. And goal-directed behavior is different to what we call habitual behavior. Because the key point about a habitual behavior is that people should keep doing it even when they don't want to do it. And this is what I... This is what I find really fascinating is to think about personal examples and think, does this really work when you put it into your everyday life? So I've been talking for years about people acting habitually. And and for a long time, I believed that people act in line with their habits and not in line with their intentions. But then I thought, actually, how many times do I find myself doing that? And I can still count on one hand the number of the number of times I found myself doing something despite the fact I told myself that I wasn't going to do it. So, for example, I remember one time years ago when I was doing my PhD, I wanted to, I used to cycle to university every day. But I told myself, remember not to take the bike because you need to. I can't remember what it was, but I needed to make sure I could get the train back. And then it was only when I was on my bike that I thought, oh, I wasn't supposed to do this, but I'd already started. So I had to carry on. It's things like that that you realize that often we can act in line with our in line with our motivation. It's just that often the two of them are in line with each other. So I might have a habit for, I might consistently cycle to the university campus. So does that mean I have a habit for for um, cycling or does it mean I've got an intention? I intend to do it, but I think I also have a habit of doing it. And it's only, as I said, when my intention changes or there's some kind of change to the situation that the true cause of the behavior emerges. See, I, I think this is really interesting and like i'm not a psychologist obviously it, it worse far worse i'm a lawyer but th- this to me is an opportunity in a way to to look at goal planning and motivation and intention in a different way so that if you can try and line all the dominoes up if you like so if you can align your habits with your goals with your intentions there should in theory be real power there if you can get that lineup right and kind of approach your goals with kind of uh, uh, habits in mind and I don't know make it a more integrated or holistic approach using a combination of the three that seems to me that would be a more powerful way of of achieving your goals yeah definitely I, I completely agree with that 
because I've talked so far about whether people act in line with their habits or in line with their intentions. But actually, that that falsely implies that our habits and our intentions aren't in agreement with each other. But actually, if you consider that the way that we form a habit is by repeatedly doing something in a particular situation so that we learn an association between that situation and the thing that we do in that situation, and then we are automatically triggered to do the thing that we do in that situation, we our habits then typically arise because we repeatedly do the things that we intend to do. And one of the reasons why habits are so useful as a kind of psychological mechanism is that it helps us to lock in the things that we need to do often so that we don't need to think about them anymore. So if you think of it, we face so many potential decision points every single day. If we had to stop and think about it and think, what's my intention here? We just wouldn't be able to do anything. If you woke up in the morning and thought, shall I get out of the bed or shall I lie in bed? And then you get up and then you think, okay, shall I walk to the other room or shall I do that? You wouldn't be able to function like that. So habits are really useful because they help us to do the things that generally we intend to do. They help us to do those things without having to think about them. So we wake up and we just automatically and habitually make our way to the bathroom, for example. So our habits and our intentions are often aligned with each other. And psychology has spent a lot of time, a lot of time and effort researching what happens when people's habits and their intentions start to diverge from each other. But I think we're now starting to, to realize that actually, as you said, I think forming a habit for doing something that you also want to do can actually be very powerful because it means that when you have a habit for doing that thing, sometimes if your intention just momentarily um, drops, then your habit can kick in and make sure that you keep doing the behavior. So something like going running at 6 a.m., if you have a habit for going running at 6 a.m., the reason that you will have that habit is because you have repeatedly gone running at 6 a.m. in the past, which means that you intend to do it. There's no one forcing you to do that. So you must have an intention to, to go running at 6 a.m. But on those days where, let's say it's it, it turns to winter, on those days where you wake up and think, oh, I do really want to go, but I just can't be bothered, then habit will step in and get you over the line, get you up, get you dressed, and then you'll start running. So habits can, can really be helpful in helping us to achieve our intentions when the strength of our intentions is momentarily weakened. We haven't really talked, I suppose, in, we haven't really talked in a weird way about how habits work. Uh, I know I have talked to lots of other people about it, but it, it's one of the things, for example, that Professor Wendy Wood was big on was making life easy for yourself, if I could put it like that. So it was this concept of removing cues insofar as you could. And you, you touch on that as well. And so I know there's no right or wrong way, but again, it, it comes back, I think, to me in my head of this, knowing what the options are uh, and then being able to adapt them to your personality. I, it doesn't feel like habits are, uh, or sorry, habits probably are to a small extent a one size fits all because the, the science of, of how they work, but maybe how to tackle them or deal with them aren't a one-size-fits-all. Some people might have greater willpower, some people might have lesser willpower, might have to rely on, on removing cues more. or so that. But if, if you knew, here's roughly how it works, and then you think, how do I work? So I don't know if I'm explaining that at all, but I'll, I'll try and give a real example then. So I would say, I would argue that my habit, or if you like, my whatever, of eating poorly, bad diet, junk food specifically, I have a sweet tooth. I would say that actually the real problem is what happens when I go to the shops 
that's where I fall down because I buy the stuff that I then eat when it's sitting around in the house. Does any of that make sense to you? Sorry, I don't know if I explained that very well. No, that makes perfect sense. I completely agree that ultimately habit, the process of habit and learning habits, one size does fit all because it is based on repeatedly doing something in a particular situation until um, you formed an association between the situation and the thing that you do so that going into the situation prompts you to do the thing that you normally do. However, the situation will be dependent on you personally. What kind of situations do you find yourself in? What kind of, and I say situation, I'm not just talking about physical locations, but other cues like, for example, stressors. I I may find something stressful that you don't find stressful, for example. And also the behaviors. Some behaviors will be appealing to me and those behaviors might not be appealing to you. So there is tremendous variation between different people with regards to what the situations and what the behaviors might be. But I, like you, I have a sweet tooth and I know that I shouldn't eat as, as poorly as I do, but there are times when, when I do eat poorly. So for example, I have a habit of when my kids finally go to sleep in the evening, I will go downstairs and just feel like they've gone to sleep. I feel like I should reward myself with a treat. Now, I know I shouldn't do that, but I know, for example, that the way for me to to not eat treats is to make sure that there are no treats in the house. My wife, on the other hand, thinks that's ridiculous and thinks that the way to not the way to stop man up, Ben, man up. (laughs) No, yeah, her her perspective is well, just don't eat them. You don't, they're there, but you don't have to eat them. But I know well enough that this just means it's an individual difference, as we say in psychology. That for me, I know that in order to not do this habit, I need to not buy the treats in the first place. Whereas my wife would just, if if it were her, she would just not go towards a treat cupboard. So yeah, it, it depends on what works for you. And I think the thing that's important if you're trying to change your habits is I'm always keen to to stress that what you need to do is first of all, do an audit, work out what are your own personal cues to doing the behavior that you don't want to do. And what is the behavior that you don't want to do? And maybe what is your what's the reason why you've developed a habit for doing that? So something like my habit of eating sweet food when the children have gone to bed is it gives me pleasure. It offsets the, the, the stress of trying to put my kids to bed. The torture of having children. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it offsets to some extent the torture of having children. But so what that means is that for me, I shouldn't think, right, I'm going to change that by I'm going to eat bananas or something because I'm probably not going to get the same thing out of bananas that I get from, say, eating chocolate. So you need to, I need to recognize what is my cue for doing this? And as I said, for me, it's that the kids have gone to bed. Okay, so I know what the cue is. What is the behavior? Well, it's eating, say, biscuits or chocolate. And then what might the alternatives be that I could do? So I might eat something else. Or, as you mentioned, it might be the case of what can I do in terms of preparation that means that the cue is no longer there or the thing that facilitates my behavior is no longer there. So if the cue is the kid's going to sleep, then my next step is to to go towards the treats cupboard. If there are no treats in there, I won't do the behavior. So yeah, I think what we have to recognize is that all behaviors ultimately sit within a system of other behaviors. And to in order to eat treats, if that's the behavior that you're interested in, you need to recognize there are other behaviors that go around it, such as the buying of the treats. So for one person, they might stop themselves acting habitually by just not buying treats, whereas someone else might be able to muster the willpower to say, no, I'm not going to eat treats and I'm going to do something else instead. So yeah, the the underlying psychology of how it works, the processes by which this works are the same, but the way in which you make it work for you depends on you. 
First of all, I suspect that my wife and your wife would get along very well. I keep telling my wife she's a serial killer. She does this weird thing where she can open a bar of chocolate, take a square, one square, and then put the bar back in the fridge and leave the bar for like days and then come and take another square. It's not right. Yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So if if when you get to that point where you've eaten so much of the chocolate, you've only got, say, two squares left. For me, I feel like a hero by finishing it. You just... Yeah well someone's got to do it and no one's ever going to want to just have two squares of chocolate so i'll finish it but of course this is this is the problem that we all have and actually what's important here i think there are potentially with something like eating there are two types of habitual behavior that are important here one is what i call habitual instigation or habitually deciding to do the behavior so if it's something like eating chocolate you might have a habit that makes you that kind of prompts you to want to eat chocolate then after that decision, whether that's a conscious decision or something that habit has done for you, after that decision comes the eating of the chocolate itself. And actually, I think that the sequence of eating chocolate, the things that you need to do in order to complete this behavior of having eaten chocolate, that can be facilitated by habit at a kind of lower level as well. So in that you put your hand, you break the chocolate off, you put it in your mouth, and then finishing one um, square of chocolate acts as the habit cue to putting your hand back to get some more and then eating it. And so in a way, you have multiple mini habits that sustain this sequence of eating chocolate. So this is another thing that I'm keen to emphasize. That I think habit can work on different levels in the same behavior. Something like going for a run, for example, that we talked about. I think you can have habit that gets you over the line of deciding that you need to go for a run. And then you can actually run in a habitual way, like you might follow the same route each time and so on. Or you might get changed in the same way. You might follow the exact same pattern of behavior because finishing each of those smaller behaviors acts as a cue to doing the next thing in your sequence. So I think this is another important point that's often overlooked in the literature, that you can habitually decide to do something and then you can habitually do that thing. When you talked about doing an audit, that's something that I've um, done. But another aspect of the audit, which isn't on point with what you said, but which I found an interesting experiment myself, was trying to figure out what the reward was or what. So again, just sticking with the, the chocolate for a second. So. Uh, I've had a stressful night. The kids have been wrecking my head. Uh, this was last night, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I come downstairs and I'm like, there has to be some chocolate here. I need some chocolate. Um, the What I was interested in was trying to figure out what feeling or what the reward is when I eat the chocolate or how I feel and then trying to brainstorm how else could I get that feeling as a kind of way of substituting it. Is there a more healthy way that I could achieve that same reward? That was part of my audit. Does that kind of make sense in terms of this uh, intention piece and, and trying to direct your behavior in a specific way, still trying to trying to bring that reward into a more conscious frame of mind so that you can try and replicate the feeling but in a healthier way yes yes definitely that that makes perfect sense that before you can um, form an intention to do something else you need to know exactly what the something else should be this is something that i think is often neglected in habit research that we as you mentioned it's really important that we understand why has someone formed a habit for doing something in the first place so if we talk about eating chocolate when the kids have gone to bed you might think actually i'm going to do this audit and i think it's just that i want something sugary but then if that's the case then eat a banana instead. So you might experiment with eating bananas and then think, no, I still don't feel satisfied. Why is that? So you can go through this trial and error process. But once you've realized or once you've decided on something that will 
act as a decent substitute for your unwanted habitual behavior, then that's when you form that intention to repeatedly do that again in the future. And so this is why I think it's important to do the audit because what it's not enough to just form an intention not to do the habitual behavior anymore because that will leave a bit of a gap. That will mean that when you're normally doing the habitual behavior, you just be thinking, what else can I do? And actually the thing that you'll do in that situation is just keep thinking about the thing that you shouldn't be doing and then you'll end up doing it. The best thing to do is to replace it with something else. So trying to work out what is so rewarding about that unwanted habit and then trying to replicate that same reward in some other way is a vital step, I think, in in changing your habits. Just very quickly, just again, the the main reason I'm sticking with sweets for, for this part of the conversation is just because it allows you to ask same, you know, questions about the same rough topics. I'd I'd already come to the conclusion that actually my bigger part was the shop and being in the shops, because typically then if when I'm at home or the kids are going down, there's no chocolate, I can't eat it. So that, that for me was the kind of, right, okay, this, this is where I need to uh, look at the roots here. But today, in advance of our um, conversation, I was just thinking back. And if you, when you do this kind of audit, you, you do this kind of introspection where i arrived was when i was about eight or nine i used to get a pound pocket money from my parents and the very first thing i did every week was go down to the shop and buy a hundred penny sweets every week and so i think from as long as i've remembered i was like if i'm in a shop and i have money i'm buying sweets and i'd come home with my hundred penny sweets absolutely delighted with life and then gorge myself it was it was a wonderful time frankly ben <laughs> But if you take that and then look at um, motivation and life factors, I have another friend who would have uh, a similar kind of poor diet to me. uh, And then and people are constantly telling me this is going to happen to me. Um, He was diagnosed with um, type two diabetes. And so all of a sudden that's a game changer. And you're it's like you're a million euro to not bite your nails. You just can't keep doing it. It's not physically feasible. Yes, but I think the the problem that you have there is that you're talking about a potential future outcome that best case scenario is that you don't experience it. So you're talking about something that's quite at this moment in your life that will probably feel like it's not really a very tangible outcome. It may well happen to you, but also it's an outcome that is a result of repeated performances of this behavior so if you're repeatedly eating chocolate then you know that the kind of accumulate that this will accumulate to the point that you might develop type 2 diabetes so one of the issues here is that we're talking about short-term outcomes so your short-term outcome is you get that rewarding feeling you get the pleasure of eating sweets eating chocolate whatever it is and then you've got to try and balance that out with knowing that there's this potential future outcome and we tend to be quite myopic we tend to be more motivated by the short-term hit than the long-term and the other issue is that yeah I've completely forgotten what I was saying (laughs) Um, okay so we're talking about short-term and long-term um, I think yes, no, I, rem- I remember what it was. Sorry, I remember now. The, the other element to this is that each time you do the behavior, it probably makes only a small difference to whether you will develop diabetes. And this is the kind of pernicious aspect to it, that you'll probably find yourself thinking, I really must stop doing this. But today is probably okay. I'll stop tomorrow. And this is exactly how it is for smokers, for example, that they think, yeah, I know that I shouldn't be doing this and I will quit. But right now I'll just have one more. 
it's the, the problem is not ha not having a plan in place of knowing this is when you're going to stop doing the behavior with something like eating chocolate you can it's different to smoking in that you could reduce the frequency with which you eat it you could reduce the amount that you eat whereas with smoking it's a case of really you either stop or you carry on. But I think they are the two issues here, that you're talking about a future outcome that you may not experience, and you're also talking about a behavior where each performance only has a small, it only increases your, your risk of experiencing that outcome by a small amount. Over time, those accumulated risks build to the extent that you may well develop it, but each one will only feel like it has a small influence on the likelihood of you developing that. So to summarize, I can keep eating chocolate and I'll be fine. Is that what you're telling me, Ben? That's no. what I heard. That's no, what I heard. no, no, no. <laughs> That's what I said. Um, <laughs> let, let me ask you two very quick questions before, before I let you go. The first is, and it's on a lot of people's minds at the moment, and it's certainly on mine, um, New Year's resolutions. So I talked to Dr. Wood about this a little bit as well. And I'm really interested in how maybe we, we could help people, even just in a very small way, alter their thinking about New Year's resolutions to up their chances of successfully maintaining them. So I had this idea of instead of this kind of New Year, new you would say New Year, new habits or New Year, new habits that the, the typical New Year's resolution is overly ambitious, almost destined to fail. And then they haven't taken any of the steps in terms of doing an audit or thinking about context cues or thinking about whether this is a habit they actually really want. And I know that some of the research says that if what typically they do is they pick a New Year's resolution that they don't really want to do at all, but they feel that they should. And so they're onto a loser before they started. If you were giving a, a really short summary or guide to someone who was thinking about New Year's resolutions, what would you be saying they should be focusing on instead of what we typically do? I would say that it's very important to almost again, do an audit before you even start. Think about what behavior do you want to change and why do you want to change it? So there's a great amount of research showing that what we call intrinsic motivation is all important. And intrinsic motivation is essentially about motivation that comes with, from within, wanting to do something because you want to do it rather than extrinsic motivation where you feel there's some pressure to do it. So a lot of people will fail at their New Year's resolutions because it's not something they want to do. They just feel that maybe they're, they're, uh, someone in their family wants them to do it or there's some kind of social pressure from whatever the source. It's just someone else is encouraging them to do it. But first of all, I think it's about finding a behavior that you want to change. And then, yes, thinking about if we're talking about stopping doing a behavior, it's about trying to identify the situations that um, prompt you to do that behavior and then think about what's the reward that, that might have led to that behavior being established in the first place and then try and replicate that reward with something else. Once you're at that stage, you've got all the ingredients that you need in order to tell yourself, create a plan for yourself that in, from that moment forward, every time you're in a particular situation in which you'd normally do the unhealthy behavior or the unwanted behavior, you will do the wanted one instead. And that is essentially the essence of habit. You create a new association for yourself between the situation and a new response to that situation. 
If, on the other hand, we're talking about people taking up something that they want to do, again, think about intrinsic motivation. Is it going to be something that they themselves enjoy doing? They might want to try it out first if they find that they don't enjoy it. So something like exercise, for example, a lot of people say, oh, I really must do more exercise. They don't enjoy doing it. They'd, even when they finish, they'd feel like it's, it's almost killed them, in which case maybe that isn't the specific behavior that they should be targeting. They should think of a particular type of exercise behavior that they find rewarding, maybe be something that is like a co competitive sport or something like that but yes find something that you know is rewarding for you find a situation in which you can consistently do it and then just tell yourself every time I'm in this situation I will do that behavior and that over time we think within a couple of weeks if it's something that you're doing every day within a couple of weeks you should find that it's starting to become part of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and that's when really the the ball has started rolling and you should be able to develop that habit. It's, it's like what I was thinking about, if, if you could put this really simply, let's say for a lot of people, the New Year's resolution is going to be to lose weight, something along those lines. Isn't the best question you could ask yourself, um, what's the most fun way I could lose weight? A good starting point in getting yourself to do to do something that you want to do rather than because the first thing people will think is I'll join a gym or I'll start running. But like you might do dancing or canoeing or abseiling or any number of things that you wouldn't necessarily think of if you just followed the less trodden path. Yes, exactly. You have to. Losing weight is an interesting one because actually there the goal itself is not behavioral. The goal is an outcome of behavior. So you have to do certain things. You have to do certain behaviors in order to lose weight. Whatever your overall goal is, you need to break it down into a specific behavior or set of behaviors. And yes, try and pick a behavior that you know is fun and just do it in a consistent way. And then you should find that you're able to start building those habits that will, over time will make a difference to you achieving that overall goal. Ben, just the very final, and this actually is the final thing because I do my interviews always go over and it's not fair to people who have very busy days. But when you looked at all these um, studies, what I thought was really interesting was like you looked at 52 studies. Does this really point towards where science thinks habits can play the most important role where like consumers is this where you could see these being you talked about scientists wanting to have impact so there's 12 on dietary consumption eight on physical activity eight on travel mode five on information technology four on alcohol consumption um, and two on environmental behaviors is this in practical terms in day-to-day -day use as a scientist how you see this could have the most impact on people's lives is it so like the huge majority of them were diet exercise and travel modes no i would say that habit to quote william james habit is 99 percent of everything that we do so i think understanding habit understanding how to form habits and how to break habits has relevance for absolutely everything that we do the reason in that paper that we found studies in those particular fields is they just happen to be the fields that scientists have have researched most and maybe that's because those the way that science works is you get funding to do research in particular areas so it's about the funders priority so if funders want to do stuff on diet then we'll find that more studies emerge in diet but my what i'm trying to do is trying to work out how habit can be applied across all um, behavioral domains. So for example, one thing that I'm working on at the moment is trying to use habit to help people make better financial decisions. I, I'm not aware of work that, that's used the psychology of habit to do that. So I think habit can be used in any number of domains because it is so fundamental um, to people's behavior. 
If you ever need a guinea pig, Ben, you give me a call. I'll, I'll give anything a crack to see if I can make sense of this whole thing. It's been really interesting talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat today. And thank you so very much. No problem. My pleasure. And as you probably guessed, I did record that just before um, New Year's uh, 2020 going into 2021. So uh, I'm sorry that I'm only uploading it now. It's a bit late for your New Year's resolution, but it's not too late um, to start your new habits. Um, Start them now. Start them uh, tomorrow uh, and uh, do the audit that Ben suggests and get going on them. Um, Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, you know the drill. Give it a thumbs up. Give it a star. Give it some comments and show it some love. Why am I asking you so explicitly to do this? I sound desperate. Well, the reason is that all the algorithms that decide whether these podcasts should be pushed to other people's ears depend on the amount of engagement and feedback they get so uh, it may not be a big deal for you just to um, add a quick comment um, but it means a huge deal in terms of um, getting this podcast out there and I would really appreciate it and thank you so very much Coming up in the next couple of episodes we'll be chatting to Niall Bresley Breslin uh, King of networking and the habit of networking which I'd never thought of before Kingsley Aikens uh, and my former colleague Claire McKenna from Live and Kicking on uh, News Talk Um, so uh, don't miss all of those subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already to make sure that you get those immediately on release they're released every Thursday uh, and Claire's up next week